G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. The book of Esther. The book of Esther. Fun facts about the book of Esther. God not mentioned once. Not mentioned once. Prayer not mentioned once. The only mention of Jerusalem and the temple was in the description of a name of someone's origin. Fun fact about the book of Esther, the tension that holds together the entire narrative of the story is a plot to annihilate all the Jews in the region, all of God's people. Fun fact of the book of Esther, the book is the historical account and the basis for the Jewish feast of Purim that to this day is celebrated by the Jewish community. The book of Esther. It's history. It's theology, it's drama, it's suspense, it's literary, masterpiece, it's legendary and miraculous. I can't say it better than the introduction that you see in the ESV study Bible. Good study Bible. They say the book of Esther is story par excellence. It has all the ingredients that people through the ages have most loved in a story. A beautiful and courageous heroine a romantic love thread, a die threat, a death threat to the good characters, a thoroughly evil villain, suspense, dramatic irony, evocative description of exotic places, sudden reversal of action, poetic justice, and they all lived happily ever after. The book of Esther, I want you to read it. It's narrative genius. It's a juxtaposed mirror image of its tensions and of its themes. It's, there's radical, unsuspected, ironic reversals, and it takes the reader through twists and turns of the lives of God's people, and it invites us to see God at work in our lives and to participate with him. The book of Esther. It will, it should, inspire you towards hope. You are going to notice, or at least I'm going to point out, the hilarious nature of God's actions in the middle of what looks like hopeless circumstances. And this will teach us about our God and how he can give us hope in our everyday seemingly hopeless circumstances. The book of Esther will also encourage you What we notice in the book of Esther is God does not need a special place to be amongst the work of his people. You you do not need to be in God's special land or special temple to have God at work in your life. And Esther will also challenge you. Esther is a picture of many different people taking their faith seriously midway through their faith journey. The name of the book is Esther. 
But Esther's not the hero. We'll learn a lot about her, but she's not the hero. God is the hero. Jesus is the hero. All scripture testifies about Jesus. And the book of Esther, you are supposed to see in its pages the person and work of Jesus. And chapter one that we've just read does not disappoint. Chapter one, that's where we're going to live today. Chapter one gives us today a case study of a godless society and a godless self and all that's going for it. A godless society and godless self and all that has going for it. Chapter one, we just heard it read, opens with, in the days of Ahasuerus, um, if you've got an NIV Bible, that may that will likely say Xerxes as well. The name is interchangeable. I'm more than likely going to say Xerxes because that's two syllables, not Ahasuerus. Okay, my tongue doesn't work at the best of times, so I'll use we'll use both. But in the days of Ahasuerus, important important first six words to ground ourselves in the context of this story. Where are we in the story of the Bible as we open up to the Book of Esther? Well, the book of Esther is a little bit like the book of Ruth. See, the book of Ruth it occurs, uh, it's, it's like this side story going on. You know, you read the book of Judges and you're like, man, God's people are so screwed up. This is so screwed. What the heck is God doing? That's so screwed up. And then there's this little side story, side narrative going on with Ruth. You're like, oh, God's doing stuff. All right, this is pretty cool. The book of Esther is kind of the equivalent Ruth, but rather than earlier on, in the journey of God's people in the Old Testament, it's right at the end. So what has happened? Oh, that's coppers. That's all right. God grant them patience and courage. Um, Honour the coppers. Um, the book of Esther happens later on in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. If you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, that, what's happened? God's people, okay? Uh, where, how far back do we want to go? Let's go back to King David. King David, what a boss. Great kingdom. King Solomon, super wise, sort of. New king, everything divides, falls apart. There's God is not honoured and there's fighting and there's turmoil and then there's bad king after bad king after bad king and God's sending through prophets and there's just like, dudes, clean it up. And then we build this narrative that humanity sucks and we need help. And then we get to the point where it's just like, all right, guys, um, Time for you to not have all of the blessing anymore. Um, you're now going to be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and be brought into exile for 70 years. Okay, that happens as God said it would. And God's people are in exile and then they get sent back out of exile after 70 years, as God said it would. Through the prophets, read through Daniel. You get a good understanding of this, of what's happening. Daniel, he's in exile. Read Jeremiah, the big major prophet. He's telling you what's going on in this time as well. In Ezra, the start of Ezra, they, they get sent back by a king who comes before Xerxes. And he's like, go back. God just flicks the switch on some pagan king. And he's like, yeah, you Jews, you go back. God's people will do what you want now. And then, by the way, take some cash. Like, just God doing God things. And then, so they go back, start be building the temple, you know, and then there's a number of kings that are happening. And if you flick to Ezra chapter 4, it gives... Ezra chapter 4, go a couple of pages to the left. That'll help give you a bit of context of where things are going. So make sure I get the right verse. Verse 6. 4 verse 6. 
Ezra chapter 4 gives you just a little summary statement of all of the oppression that happened to God's people as they're trying to rebuild the temple after it got destroyed. Exile, destruction, new temple being, being rebuilt, okay? Temple is important for God's people. They want to rebuild it. And there's this like, it's like a throwaway verse. Nothing's throwaway in the Bible, but it feels that way, okay? It says, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, so God's people, um, and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of, per king of Persia. So he's skipping through a few kings there, a few leaders, okay? A few big dogs. And... Verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants. That verse is like, now flick to Esther. Learn all about what happened there. So Esther's like the side story in the main game of what's going on, okay? We got context now? Yeah, hope so. Read your Bible. That'll give you more and you'll be like changed from the inside out. It's awesome. We digress. Xerxes. So now we're, we're transported behind enemy lines to this historian who's taking an account of now the time in history when some of God's people are in Jerusalem building away and some of God's people are still back in Persia. There's like some of them went, some of them didn't. So it's a really interesting moment. And we get to find out what's going on in the palace of Xerxes. And we get this big description, don't we? This big, big sexy party from Xerxes. 180 days to showing it all off. And then he brings the whole town in. And he's like, let's get hammered and just do bad stuff for seven days. And then we get the story of Vashti. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, not doing that. Mr. King, husband, man, and then you get the decree against all the women of the land, okay? Now, I just read Esther chapter 1, read it all. How'd you feel? How'd you feel? I'm going to ask you this here, because before I tell you what chapter 1 is about, I need to tell you what it, I need to tell you what it isn't about, but we do need to address the tension. How do you react to this section of the story, these power dynamics, these act, the actions of this husband and this wife, this king and this queen. What are your reactions to what's going on here? To when the edict goes out and the wise men plot and plan about, you know what you need to do, king? You need to make a law. You need to write a policy document. You need to enforce obedience of all the wives to the husbands or else they're just going to go crazy. That's what we need to do. How do you feel about that? Maybe you get a bit nervous, feels a bit weird. Maybe you get a bit worked up. How dare Xerxes and that mecha man, wise man. He's not a wise man, he's a jerk. Maybe you get intrigued. Maybe you're like, oh, maybe this is how marriage is supposed to go according to the Bible. Maybe you're there. Okay, no. Maybe you get confused as you read through this. You're reading the Bible and you're like, this is in the Bible? Is this like what's meant to happen? This is in the Bible. I went to church and they said there was like laws of like, of like, of an, what's going on? All right. Top tip for reading a Bible. When things get weird, don't brush it off. Don't speed up. Get to the next verse that makes you feel comfortable. Slow down. Slow down. Stop and smell the roses. And stop. When you smell the roses, stop. This is in 
your gospel community discussion guide. How are you going to engage well in the book of Esther? Stop. S-T-O-P. Ask yourself these questions. Stop. Situation. What type of situation is this? Type. T, type. What type of literature is this? Is this history? Is this narrative? Is this poetry? Is this prophecy? Is this law? Is this wisdom? Is this a song? Is this a letter? O, object. Who is the object of this text? Is this to everyone? Is this to you and me? Is this to specific people? Is this just to ancient Israel? And P, prescription. Is what we're reading in chapter 1 something that's a prescribed action for us to do? Or is it a description of something that happened? When the Bible gets weird, when you want to speed up and get through it, slow down and smell the roses and stop. What's the situation? What's the type of literature? Who's the object of the writing? And is this prescriptive or descriptive? Do you want me to help you out with Esther chapter 1, with what's going on here with these laws, the king and the queen? This is describing the state of the king and his kingdom. It's not delivering a mandate for your living. Breath of fresh air by all the wives in the room. And why can I say that with such confidence? Notice, when you read this text, there's no comment from the narrator as to the moral integrity of the characters. It's just telling you what's happening. Notice there's no narrator's note on whether this was good or bad, right or wrong. It's just reporting the news. Notice there's the actions of Vashti or Xerxes aren't held up as models of living and they aren't shut down. It's just a description of what's happening. This section of the Bible is not teaching us about marriage dynamics. Phew. The action of Vashti, okay, that's not a biblical instruction that we can take to our next feminist march, okay? The, act, the edict of the king, it's not a biblical rule for forced obedience towards wives, okay? This section is commentary, it's not coaching. Just retelling the story. If anything, right? Like, we have this story, it's a big party, yeah, the king and all of these boys. Like, it's a comical insight into the nature of his kingdom, right? This big enemy na- nation overruling everything, you know, and yet the king can't even control his own courtroom. See, if you're looking for godly instruction for marriage, it's in the Bible, just not in Esther chapter 1. Sigh of relief. There's teaching in the Bible directed to the people of God and how they are to shape their marriages on what God says is honouring to him and good for us. And what does the Bible say about Jesus honouring marriages? Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love, lay down your life, lay down the remote, lay down your preferences, husbands, for your wife. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Gentle, compassionate, kind, Jesus-like love, husbands to wives. 1 Peter 3, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour. There's, you know, stop, situation, type, all that. Okay, there you go, husbands. Take that home. 
Also, likewise to wives. Wives, we don't like this word, but submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Read the whole book and you'll understand more about that word submit. We all submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. 1 Peter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. There's some passages about marriage dynamics in the Bible. And those passages, of course, need time for proper unpacking. Don't recoil and retaliate in judgment. Seek to understand and hold them up to the whole counsel of God and also the life of Jesus. Because let me tell you, I mean, this isn't going to be a marriage of marriage. This is going to be a sermon about marriage. But if you take time to dive in, husbands and wives, put into proper practice what God says is good and respectful and honoring, God's guidance leads to beautiful, productive, healthy marriages. Ones of love, trust, harmony, unity. Ones where the complete, unique design of both man and woman is cultivated, celebrated into throughout a complementary relationship. I'm so thankful for many Christian marriages in this church. Decades, decades. Praise be to God for the way that he loves and cares for his children as we seek to model and obey, obey Christ and show off the gospel in our marriages. Now, Esther 1 isn't supposed to teach us about marriage. Maybe what you do know now from the Bible, you can make, you know, you can apply some principles to Xerxes and Vashti's marriage. You know, you can sit back and judge it if you want. You know, Xerxes in the drunken context, he's not doing what you would call an honoring act on his part. It's more self-indulgent than sacrificial, I think. You know, shame on you, Xerxes. And Vashti, well, we're still left with questions, right? You know, where was she the whole time? You know, why was she hosting her own party? Like, where's the respectful communication and unity in this marriage? Like, of which is both partners' responsibility, you know? But the text doesn't make a comment. So we can just be like, we can just leave it. What is this text supposed to tell us? What is this text supposed to tell us? What is the point of Esther chapter one after our short little side note on marriage? Think back to the chapter. Ask yourself, what is the narrative describing? What did we read about? Well, we've got a king and his kingdom. We've got a case study into human character when you get to make all the rules and you've got all the resources. We've got a case study into human character and human kingdoms when God is not primary. Remember? This is like the enemy nation. And we get to sit in their party and find out how do they behave when they've got all the stuff and God's not a priority. Well, when you've got all the power, all the clout, all the confidence of Xerxes, this is what you do. We read it, right? You show it off. Show it off. Build yourself a house, really nice house. Check out my golden couches. They were hard to put together after I bought them from Ikea. Delivery was so expensive. They're heavy. You wear the clothes, you drink the drinks, bring out the wine. No, 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 no. Not the goon stuff, the royal wine. Let's see that royal wine for everybody. Show it off. What else do you do? 
You party big. Best way to display your best qualities and to virtue signal and to make friends, show them a good time. Drug them up for free. What else do you do? You rule the roost, don't you? When people don't come in line with your design, you know, a bit of muscle, a few dollars, a new law, a new policy, a bit of a threat, that'll guarantee your ongoing sovereignty. See, when God is absent or minimised, Xerxes gives us some good case studies. And doesn't his life line up so well with a secular, godless world? Does it not? Win people by giving them what they want. Free beer, free coffee, drugs, money, experience. Make big decisions with a cabinet of wise advisors and smart people. Look at me, doing big boy things all on my own. And when things don't go your way, just make new rules. Threaten, coerce, overrule, play that trump card. Do you know who I am? See, forget about, just forget about serving people with kindness, love, treating them with respect. Just impress them. So you forget about prayer, seeking God and being led by him. Just make your own self-directed plan. So you forget about resting in the loving, sovereign control of God when things don't go the way that you would have liked. Forget about that. When you've got all the power, all the clout, and all the confidence of Xerxes, these are the things you do. This is what you'd do. This is what you would do. Like, no consequences, no ramifications. Look deep down in your heart. This is what I would do. Yeah? This is what I would do, right? You know, get impressive. You know, be self-directed. Be powerful. You know, be impressive. You know, vulnerability moment. I'm ashamed of this one. I was, I'm, get, I'm going okay with my surfing now, okay? I've been in Sorkey for four years. You know, picked it up. Working on my hang five game. Gone pretty good on the longboard, you know? You know what we're talking about? It's just great surf the other day. I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to paddle right out the back, and I'm going to catch a big wave. And you know the other cool thing? This is the thought. I could show someone my awesome move. Be impressive. What a jerk. What a self-indulgent idiot I am. That thought went through my head. Like, shut up, flesh. Be self-directed. Man, for me, the amount of worries and things I leave in my lap for me to figure out, why am I not being more prayerful and crying for the help and the clarity from God that I need so it would come sooner and better? Relying on myself like a chump. Or be powerful, yeah? Be powerful in our own little kingdoms. You know, those moments when you just, you lack, you feel like you lack that control with your kids. And you're just like, that's it. Just making a new rule. New edict goes out in the Glacebrook household. There will be no TV for two weeks until you come in line. Where's the love? Where's the respect? Where's trying to get down on their level and hear from them? Nah, just be impressive, be powerful, be self-directed. Just rule your own little kingdom. Leave God out of it. Where was my humility? Where was my love? 
Where was my God? I minimised him, hadn't I? So quickly I can forget, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So quickly I can forget, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. So quickly I forget. What about you? What about you? Maybe you like King Xerxes' behaviour. Maybe there's certain elements of Xerxes' pomp and power that you're like, no, it's a pretty compelling lifestyle. A few things worth working towards there, you know. Maybe you're being a little bit extreme, Louis, you know, and you're, you know, maybe being a little bit hard on yourself. Like, is it really that bad to be impressive? Is it really that bad to be a bit independent and, you know, have that authority and discretion that Xerxes kind of models to us? Like, you know, is it really that bad? Well, keep looking at old mate Ahasuerus. Yeah, he's impressive. You might be like, whoa, he's one of the greatest rulers ever. Rich, powerful, fun. Read between the lines. Put the story in our day. What is the end state and culmination of, human, of his human propensity? It's repulsive. Look again at his uninhibited animal-like behavior. It's not liberating. It's oppressive. You might say, whoa, he's so free, but more like, oh, he's enslaved. Like, look at his circumstances. Maybe you say, whoa, situation, show off your royal glory with your silver curtain hanging rods. Go you. See your greatness for many days. 180-day party. Come on. What a party. Sounds great. More like, oh, is this king really going to do anything of any merit? You know, through the whole book of Esther, like the king does, barely makes a decision for himself. All he does is eat and drink and be merry, and then he just gets angry and just makes everyone else make decisions for him. Great legacy, Xerxes. He's a slave to his personal vices. He's a slave to his passions and everyone else's opinions. Or maybe you look at his stuff and you're like, whoa, yeah, look at that stuff. Yeah, even... You know, he's got the new Cybertruck camel, you know, the marble pillars, you know. Oh, yeah, look at that. That's great. House sublime, royal wine all the time. It sounds fine. Whoa. More like, oh, house, throne, won through bloody victory and conquest. This king is trapped in a cage of his own making. He's at the top. Where else is there to go now but to drown the sorrows of his guilt or just to keep on fighting off every warmongering challenger that wants his gold? Circumstances, his stuff, or maybe you look at his people. Maybe you're like, whoa, look at his people. He's surrounded by like warriors. This is King Xerxes. He had like the immortals fighting for him, like the immortals. Like that, those, that army called the immortals. Like, who, who fights for you? What's your army called? The Immortals. Do they ever die? They're immortal. Like, so, great name. Like, whoever their marketing guy was, just the Immortals on point. Like, go him. <laughs> Sorry. Stay to your notes, Louis. Come on. Surrounded by nobles and warriors and servants. Look at the people that are kicking around Xerxes. Look at the company he keeps. Popular. Everyone's liking his post. He's verified. He's got a thousand, thousands of followers. But more like, whoa, whoa. Nobles, armies, all the people of Susa, all in his presence. But all they want 
It's not his friendship. They just want his stuff. They just want to be near this great guy, hang out with him, so then they can go home and tell their mates, I got to hang out with Xerxes today. I went surfing with John Don today. Did all this great stuff with that person today. Do you know who I saw at the Pond Cafe? Oh, they're awesome. Got a little experience of glory. <laughs> I'm radiant. And Xerxes' servants, none of them are there by choice, are they? None of them are there with any real joy. His servants are just doing what they're told, you know, getting the notification on their app. Then they run around and get the food. Then they deliver it in the bag. Then they go take a message and then they go around and do it again. This great king, everyone moving at his every whim. Who's this? Eunuchs, exploited, castrated men for this man of power. Like, I don't know if it gets any worse than that, really. And the women in the palace, we all know what they're there for. Well, ask your neighbor what they're there for. Kids are in city kids. You can, don't have to whisper that one. Objects of lust and sexual exploitation. Whoa, more like, oh. This king is alone. He has it all financially, physically, experientially, yet has no real friends, no authentic company. King Xerxes represents the best the world can give you if you don't have God. Parties, the way of this world, if you have no God, if you are trying to be God, all there is is eat, drink, and be merry. Orders, if you've got God-like status at your hands, it's only going to lead you to harming others. Rules, you get to say what sin and righteousness is, and the only control that you've got over people is coercion and threatening. King Xerxes, he's doing what many of us would do if we also didn't have the direction of God, isn't he? Without God, his life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. Is this a world that you desire to inhabit? You want to follow King Xerxes? Become a disciple of King Xerxes? Walk in the ways of King Xerxes? I hope that the account of this king would make you question your default human desires. Because what's the progression of fame? Get rich, live big, die young, or end up in rehab. In the words of Kerry Packer, in response to the question, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. In the words of Jim Carrey, I wish everyone in the world could be rich and famous and have all the success that I've had so that they too would know that it doesn't bring them happiness. Can you see what the problem is? Can you see what the problem is? I mean, Jesus nails it. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Esther chapter 1 gives us King Xerxes to show the default posture of a godless human heart, a case study into a godless society and godless self, and all that has going for it. Is anyone else noticing that this seems all too familiar in today's world? This happened over 2,400 years ago. You see, the people and the date changes, but human character doesn't. So let's ask this question then. Why is it 
that when you dissect the state of Xerxes' kingdom, it's an absolute disaster? Why is it that when you really take time to analyse the way of this world and your own human heart, why does it feel like an absolute disaster? I'll just, I'll just speak for myself on that one. Just disaster. Because, you know, these are the results of human character and human kingdoms. You see, the Bible teaches that we are not meant to be led by a mere human. We are meant to exist not in human company, with human leadership, in a human kingdom. On our own, we are a disaster. We need godly character. We need God's kingdom. We need a saviour. We need the hero of the book of Esther. We need Jesus, the God-man, fully man and fully God, the one who came to this world and in effect said, guys, forget everything you once knew about this world. You've been reading history? Not going so well, is it? Hmm. Seeing some patterns now for the last two and a half thousand years? Unlearn the ways of this world and instead learn from me, Jesus would say. Rethink everything and believe my words, Jesus would say. Hear from me, Jesus would say. He would say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And you can only have God, the God of heaven, through me. Only through me can you have the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of heaven. Are you listening? Jesus would say. Wake up, Jesus would say. This kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's not repulsive. It's redemptive. The kingdom of God, it's not about exploitation. It's about restoration. The kingdom of God, it's not about fear. It's about love. It's not about self-serving. It's about self-sacrifice. It's not led by coercion. It's led by kindness. Esther 1, here's the big idea. This historical case study of a nation without God's governance makes us see the beauty of Jesus and his governance, doesn't it? See, Jesus doesn't party aimlessly. He provides generously. Jesus doesn't coerce for us to conform. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. Jesus doesn't push personal knowledge. He gives divine direction. Jesus, his way of leadership is sacrificial service. It's the way of the cross. He's the king who came to live and die and rise again to give us hope and a fresh start in life. See, Jesus, he sees our shame and our default human desires. He sees our propensities towards evil and exploitation. And he doesn't make a new rule. He doesn't create a new edict. He doesn't brush it under the rug. He deals with that sin. Deals with it. It's like, give it to me. I'll take it away. I'll deal with it. I'll give you in place of that a new heart, a new mind, a new way of living different. Live new, live afresh, receive that from me. What's it going to cost? Got it covered, mate. Just unlimited, yeah? That's a blood bank pouch in case you want to fill in the, the mime. He pays for it with his own blood. 
He's our great king. He's a better king than any king and every king. He is the king of kings. And he actually leads those who follow him. He actually leads with humility, with courage, with respect, with strength and in power. Jesus, he teaches, he models, and he embodies and empowers his followers in his kingdom characteristics. You follow Jesus and all of a sudden in your life, you're not drunk on wine, but you're full of love, joy, and peace. You're not looking to exploit the people around you. All of a sudden you are patient, good, and kind. You haven't lost control and you're not waking up the next day with a bag of a headache and a bag full of regret, but instead you are resting and you are being changed towards someone who is faithful and gentle and full of self-control. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the greatest king. Jesus is the king of kings. See, here's a quote by a better preacher than me that's worth repeating. Just in case you haven't got it yet. You see, Xerxes was the son of Darius. Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes used his power to abuse women, but Jesus uses his power to honour women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus now sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth, but Jesus made the heavens and the earth, and he rules over everything in creation. Xerxes never tasted poverty nor humility to sympathize with his people, but Jesus tasted poverty and humility to identify with his people. Xerxes, though he was a man that acted like God, only Jesus is God who became a man. Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but the one Jesus is preparing for us makes his Xerxes banquet pale in comparison. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshippers from every nation. Xerxes died, is dead, and today no one worships Xerxes. But Jesus conquered death, dying in our place, and today billions worship Jesus as the one true God. See, those of you that have committed your life to following King Jesus, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We have received a greater gift and we are looking forward to a greater blessing. And here, right here, right now, we gather in the name and in the presence and in the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your king? Have you rejected the kingdom of this world? Have you said no to your sin and the sins of this society? Have you been honest with yourself and admitted that you make a crummy king? And have you felt a need and have you longed for the better, pure, peaceful leadership that now you know the king's name? His name is Jesus. Do you want that? Is Jesus your king? Do you worship him? 
Does your life reflect being a follower of him? Do you want it to? We are a church that is committed to Jesus, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And we are a church that is committed to praying to and with Jesus for that to be possible. We so often forget and minimize God in our lives. We so often forget God and minimize him in our lives because we are not searching for him. Search out your king. Come and see the king. Hear from him. Watch him work in your life and in the lives of others. And if you do the first two, search and see, I won't have to tell you to do the last. You will share. You won't be able to stop telling people about who it is that is for you and not against you. So here I end with an invitation to you, my church family, to be a people of prayer, a people of the word, a people of seeking after Jesus and going, what do you want to do, God? What do you have in store for us? We know you're so good. We would like some more, please. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'd love to see you on Monday, Wednesday, here next Sunday as we keep pursuing the presence of our living God. Let me pray.